I trust as uh, Stuart read from Ezra earlier, you were able to find that book in your Bible. (laughs) Some of you may not be familiar with where to find it. You have the first five books of the Bible, which is your Pentateuch. We then go into Joshua and Judges. And then you have the record of the kings, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and straight after that you have the Book of Ezra. So hopefully you can you can find your way there. We are going to be spending much of our time tonight in the first six chapters of Ezra, and we're going to be looking at the characters of Zerubbabel and Joshua, Zerubbabel and Joshua. For the child of God, and indeed the church of God, worship is central to our expression of love, devotion, adoration, dependence, and thanksgiving. It is through worship that we attribute worth to God and give him reverence, honor, and glory, exalting his name above all else and submitting to his rule and reign in our lives. And tonight, the opening chapters of Ezra that we're going to consider remind us of the centrality of worship to the believer. And if we are to truly enjoy him forever, then this is an area of our Christian walk that needs to be reviewed, revived, and at times repaired or restored. Now, that's not my outline. (laughs) The, The outline is slightly different to that. We will see this pattern through the example of Judah in our text with a special focus on two individuals who lead the people in this restoration process. But before we get there, we need to set a little bit of the historical context. And I want to do that under our first heading tonight, which is broken worship. Uh, Doug alluded to some of this in this morning's message. Stuart mentioned a little bit of it in the opening. But let's just put our, our minds in frame of where we are in Israel's history. At this stage, um, a couple years preceding this, um, Judah is a vassal state of Egypt, which means they are ruled by the Egyptians. And Jehoiakim has been appointed to rule over the region from Jerusalem. In about 605 BC, the Babylonian Empire rises up and defeats Egypt um, at the Battle of Carchemish. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar hears that his father has died suddenly, and he makes his way directly back to Babylon to be crowned king. In the meantime, his armies make their way to Jerusalem, and they begin what is known as the first siege of Jerusalem. It's in the siege that Daniel and some other young men and some of the nobility of Jerusalem are taken back to Babylon. Along with them, Jehoiakim sells off almost as a, a sign of defeat some of the, the temple furnishings and the gold and the silver of the temple, and the city of Jerusalem is left fairly untouched in the siege. And so the nation of Judah becomes subjective to a new rule, the Babylonians. About eight years later, Jehoiakim revolts against this, this rule, and um, Nebuchadnezzar returns in the second siege of Jerusalem. And the, the time frame is now about 597 B.C., and the destruction is devastating. Um, we, you can read of that in Second Kings 24. But once again, Nebuchadnezzar puts another uh, person in charge over the remains of the city, and that's Zedekiah. And uh, we heard a little bit about Jeremiah this morning. And Zedekiah was, was one of those who gave 
Jeremiah the prophet a great deal of difficulty um, in his rule. But just like his father, Zedekiah rebels against Babylon and the armies of Nebuchadnezzar return again in its final siege. And this siege would last two years, uh, which ends in 586 BC. And we read in 2 Kings 25 that they burned the house of God, broke down the walls of Jerusalem, and carried off all the implements of the temple. And so God sends Judah into the 70 years of captivity, 70 years of punishment um, on the nation. And one of the primary reasons he did that was because they disobeyed God's law of Sabbath rest for the land. God had instructed back in Leviticus 25 that every seven years was to be a year of rest for the land. And they, they disobeyed that law. And so in Leviticus 26, we read these words, The land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them. And they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. At this point, God's appointed place for his people to worship him has been destroyed. All the implements used in the service in the temple have been carried off. But it was not the destruction of the temple that marked the end of worship for Judah. Their worship had been in ruins for some time. And the complete destruction of the temple was a visible way for God to emphasize what was a present reality. They had given themselves to worship the gods of the nations rather than drawing all people to worship the God who created all those nations. And so that really is is a summary of, of where the nation of Judah is. This is the state of their broken worship. But secondly tonight, and as we get closer into reviewing our two um, lesser known characters, we want to consider a faithful response. And thankfully, the Lord doesn't leave his people in the state. If we jump to the end of the 70 years of exile, we see that um, Babylon has been overthrown by the Persians, and they are ruled by King Cyrus. And we would have read that in the opening verses of of Ezra. And Cyrus is referred to as Cyrus the Great in a lot of historical records because he was quite a gracious ruler. He was gracious to those that he conquered. And it is this King Cyrus that we are introduced to at the beginning of Ezra, and he makes this proclamation to the captives from Judah that they are free to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God. So won't you look with me if you are still there in Ezra chapter 1. Let's just read verse 1 again. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. I don't know about you, but I can't help wonder if Daniel had some part to play in the stirring of King Cyrus's heart. We read in Daniel 9, uh, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent of Mede, who was made king over the realms of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, 
namely 70 years. There was great promise in God's word that this captivity wouldn't continue inevitably. There was actually a time frame given, and those who knew of the, the prophet's writings, they would have possibly thought of Isaiah's writings, because we read in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45, which occurred about 100 years before this, um, before these events, that Cyrus is God's shepherd, and he will be used by God to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And so we see Cyrus moved by God to hear these words of prophecy, possibly to hear these words um, from Daniel, who, would, who might have been serving in his courts, and his move to allow the people of God to return to their land. And that's where we, uh, if you jump forward to Ezra 2, we see that there's this proclamation is made and about 43,000 people return to Jerusalem from exile. But I want us to notice that this wasn't a command. This wasn't King Cyrus saying, you will go or you must go. But he says there in Ezra 1 verse 3, whoever is among you, let him go up. This was open-ended. Whoever's, whoever wants to go can go. And now you might think, well, who wouldn't want to return to their homeland? But let's also consider what we just read a few moments ago, that the, the state in which Jerusalem was left in. Um, at best, there might have been a few vineyards and farmlands with the poorest of the land were tending to. Their city, their homes, their temple was non-existent. In contrast, they probably established a life for themselves in Babylon. They've been there 70 years. Um, some may have established business. Others might have uh, actually created a bit of wealth from, from their time in Babylon. Why give up a secure, somewhat comfortable life for the uncertainty of Jerusalem? And that is why I've called this point a faithful response. I hope you see with me that it was a sacrifice for these people to return out of exile to Jerusalem. Nonetheless, it was a sacrifice that they were moved by God to make. God doesn't only raise up the people, he also raises up leadership. And God moves in the heart of those who would lead his people back to Jerusalem to begin the work of rebuilding. Look with me, if you will, at the first two verses of Ezra chapter 2. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and then a couple other names are mentioned there. These are the two figures that we really want to focus on tonight in our study. Zerubbabel and Jeshua, or Joshua. Similar root word for, for both of those names. We learn from other references in Ezra that Zerubbabel was the son of Shealtiel. He was the grandson of King Jehoiakim. And rightly so, he would have had the right of kingship in the land had Judah not been under the rule of a foreign nation. Joshua is the son of Josedek, and obviously he's in the priestly line. Um, 
not to be confused with Joshua, the son of Nun, who led God's people um, uh, into the promised land after Moses had died. Okay, this is a different Joshua. Um, If God's temple is to be restored, then you need to have the priests and Levites to serve in that temple. And so Joshua is among, uh, with a, a number of other Levites and priests, he's among the first that would go up with Zerubbabel back to uh, Jerusalem. These two men are mentioned together some 11 times between the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai. Uh, on some occasions, Zerubbabel is mentioned on his own, but most of the time we find their names together, and that really highlights for us the role that they had in leading the people of Israel back to Jerusalem to do the work of God. As a pseudo-king and as the priest of God, you have in Zerubbabel and Joshua the leaders that God had raised up in captivity and is now moving them to reestablish worship in Jerusalem. And they lead this group of people, and um, this almost has a bit of an exodus feel to it, doesn't it? Because you have the children of Israel being led out of captivity to go and worship God in his desired place. Sounds very much like Exodus. And after a four-month journey, they settle back in their towns, and they are then called to gather at Jerusalem for one purpose, and that is to build the altar of God. The proclamation of Cyrus was that they were to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the house of God. And they'll get to that. They're not disobeying that proclamation. But both Zerubbabel and Joshua, along with the other leaders that are with them, they know and realize that if they do not turn to the Lord in repentance and offer sacrifice to him for their iniquities, that God will not bless the work of their hands. Their first priority is to reestablish the sacrificial system. But notice also the reformation that is taking place in God's people If you'll jump forward now again, as we look at Ezra 3, verse 3, it says there, They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. This remnant were were fearful of the enemies that were around them, and you would almost be tempted to Excuse them if they had prioritized the the building of the city walls first. Um, Maybe they would have been thinking, well, let's make sure we are safe. Let's make sure our families are safe. Let's make sure all this gold and silver and temple furnishings that that have been put in our trust um, are not going to be stolen away by thieves. Let's make sure we keep the enemy out. No, rather... Let's make sure we write with God. Zerubbabel and Joshua and the other kinsmen and priests reestablished the right order of worship. God first. Is this true of our worship? Is God first? Can you say of your life that there are no other gods before him? When we sang those words earlier tonight, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, 
Were those just words that emanated from our lips? Or were they words that came from our heart? Or can we say with the psalmist, you alone are God? After the altar is rebuilt, the people set about work on the temple. They first lay the foundations of the temple, and after the foundations are laid, you'll read at the end of chapter 3 that there's this great celebration. But not everybody's celebrating. And as you, if you know the passage, you'll be reminded that there were some people amongst this remnant who saw Solomon's temple in its previous glory. And they actually mourn. They, they, are, um, they turn to tears because they can see from the foundation that's been laid that this temple is not going to compare to Solomon's temple. It's not going to be as glorious. And so we see this scene there where there's, there's great rejoicing and great joy mixed with great mourning and great sorrow. Um, but nonetheless, God has used his people to begin the work of restoration. But as with any event where God's work is taking place, it doesn't take long for those to rise up who would prevent God's work from taking place. And so the third thing I want us to see tonight is hindered progress. Hindered progress. You have these adversaries who come on the scene, um, and they approach Zerubbabel, not initially with any hostility, but they come with deception, and they make an offer to build with the people. And they give this reason. For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Wisely, Zerubbabel and Joshua refuse their offer. And I wonder if they were thinking, as, as I thought reading this, exactly which God are you referring to? Or maybe, where exactly have you been sacrificing to this God? seen as the temple lies in ruins. No doubt they had every right to ask those questions. But as with any opposition to the work of God, these adversaries do not go away easily. They continue to discourage the people, and they slow down the work on the temple. After this strategy has run its course, they then turn to the, the newly appointed king, Artaxerxes, who, who maybe doesn't have the, the history of King Cyrus's decree, and they encourage this king to issue a stop order notice. No further work is to happen on the temple. And they enforce this by force and by power, we read. This is really the low point of Zerubbabel and Joshua's leadership. We don't see any record here of them appealing the stop order. We don't see them appealing to Artaxerxes. They had the original director from Cyrus to do the work, but it's almost as though they paralyzed with fear by this new decree. Maybe the force and power by which they were made to stop the work made them fear man rather than fear God. We had a look in our family Bible our class last Sunday morning as we concluded 1 Thessalonians 5 that Paul says to the elders of the church that they are to encourage the faint-hearted. And that word really stood out to me. Faint-hearted is a unique word introduced by Paul, which means small soul. Small soul. You may be like these two men or, or the leadership of, of Judah. 
um, in that they were looking at this opposition and they were thinking, God just doesn't seem big enough for our problems or our trials. Maybe the enemies of God who are surrounding you seem to outnumber the host of heaven. And you question where your help is going to come from. You know what the only cure for a faint heart is? Do you know what the only cure for this small soul is? It's to be reminded of truth. Truth about God. Psalm 47 verse 8 tells us God reigns over the nations. Psalm 99 verse 1, the Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. Deuteronomy 10 verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. And Jeremiah 10 verse 6 tells us, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great. In might. If your soul is small tonight, that is the cure for you. Be reminded of who God is. Be reminded of God's greatness. Lift up your eyes and see him high and exalted. And that is really what the prophet Haggai helps Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people to do. The work has ceased on the temple for about seven years. Seven years have gone by and nothing more has happened. And we have Haggai who is prophesying during this time. And he comes to them and he says in Haggai chapter 1 verse 4 to 8, if you allow me to read these words. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. And so our closing point tonight is worship restored. Worship restored. The question mark at the end of that title is intentional. And I'll I'll show you why in a moment. Not only had the people stopped building the temple, they had turned to building their own houses. They are blinded to the fact that everything that they put in their hands to, as Haggai reminded them, is turning to futility. They're not satisfied in anything because they're not satisfied in God first. Once again, their worship appears to be broken. But this time, they hear God's word and they respond to it in faith. And if you'll look with me at Ezra chapter 5, verse 2, and we see just how they respond. Ezra 5 verse 2, Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josedek arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. If you read the rest of the story in chapter 5 and 6, you'll see that opposition rose up again. But this time that opposition didn't thwart their progress. This time that opposition didn't stop them from doing God's work. And some 20 years after they had returned from exile, 
the temple is completed. There's a huge dedication ceremony and sin offerings are made for all of Israel. And the people then observe the Passover feast together with joy. And it tells us in in chapter 6, because the Lord had made them joyful. The Lord had made them joyful. Worship has been restored to Israel. And like my point indicated, or has it, has worship truly been restored to Israel? I want you to notice, if you, if you spend time in this text, you'll notice there's one distinct difference between this dedication of the temple and the previous dedications of the temple. The previous two temples were typically the tabernacle, which was under Moses, and then we see the, the glorious temple of Solomon. And in both those accounts, when the temple was completed, we see the presence of God descending on the temple and making his presence known in that place. We don't see that here. I don't think that means to us that, that God is not present or that he was not pleased by this temple. I think the very fact that God made his people joyful seems to point out that, that God was pleased with what was happening. God accepted their sacrifices. There was, there was no judgment for the sacrifices that were offered. But we see, um, although, that, although the temple worship was reinstated under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, there was something different. The temple was not as glorious. The whole nation was not back in Jerusalem worshiping God. There was no city to speak of as the wall still needed to be built. And God's presence was not visible in a tangible way, even though he was there. But there is the promise of a future time when God's glory will be known to all the peoples of the earth. And right here in, in Haggai's prophecy, although it, goes, it predates the, the coming of Christ some, some 500 years we see some of this prophecy about the future glory of God's temple. And if you will, turn with me to Haggai, another difficult book to find in your Bible, (laughs) one of the minor prophets, the third last book of the Old Testament. And we're going to read the opening verses of Haggai chapter 2 as we finish tonight. Haggai 2, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. There's the presence of God. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house 
shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Wonderful words of hope that Haggai uses to assure Zerubbabel and Joshua and the nations. They don't need to fear. They must continue the work. But he also gives them hope of the future promise. And that future promise is the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. The prophetic language of shaking the heavens and the earth should make us think of the change that Christ will bring in as he ushers in the church. Through his redeeming sacrifice on the cross, he would usher in the new covenant. The new covenant would be exercised through his covenant people, the church. The same people that God purchased through the blood of his son. The coming glory of the house of God is the expansion of God's kingdom through his church as it is faithfully proclaimed to all the nations. This is God building his church and the gates of hell not prevailing against it. This is the earth being full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's providential that we've had two sermons today on, on building and restoration. This morning we were challenged about uh, whether we are the temple of God and are we faithfully adding to the temple of God. And, and Brackenos, tonight I challenge you, and as we've been challenged through the example of Zerubbabel and Joshua, I trust that our worship of God is building to the expansion of God's kingdom among the nations. Let us pray. Father, we praise you that you are a promise-keeping God. We thank you for words of prophecy that you have given to men down through the ages that have been recorded for us to, to read and piece together history, your history of the nations, and to see how you weave your message of grace, the message of the gospel going to the nations. We thank you for the, the way that you preserved your people we haven't looked at it tonight, but we are aware that Zerubbabel is in the line of Christ. He is the one that would, would uh, be of the, of the seed of David and uh, from the line of Judah. And one day, Christ the Messiah would come. And we thank you, Lord, that we can be in this part of history where we look back to the cross and we see the fulfillment of that promise. Father, encourage us. There is so much around us, like the Israelites, to discourage us, Lord. There may be even some who are, who are discouraging us to the point of putting down our tools, stopping the work of God. We pray, Lord, that we would see your word. We would hear your call that you are God and your purposes will not be uh, stopped. You will establish your kingdom. And thank you, Lord, that you are establishing your kingdom through your local church. We pray, Lord, you'd continue to do that. Bless us now in our time of prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.